Good afternoon. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. I am Judge Allegra Collins. To my right is Judge Toby Hampson. To my left is Judge Carolyn Thompson. Our clerk today is Roderick McFarland. Our marshal today is Deputy Marshal Richard Remillard. We have one case on the calendar for today. It is 23751 Atlantic Distributions Incorporated versus Land Coast Insulation Incorporated. Counsel for the appellant, would you like to reserve any time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Five minutes, thank you. Counsel, are you ready? You may proceed. May it please the court, Judge Collins, Judge Hampson, Judge Thompson, uh, good afternoon. My name is Jonathan Preziosi from Lewis Brisbois, Biscoe, and Smith, representing uh, Prohoc BJ, each of the appellants in this matter. Uh, the appeal, as you know, uh, presents a question of statutory construction and therefore the court's review of the issues presented uh, is a de novo standard. The case arises from a summary judgment motion and essentially a cross motion by the parties uh, in which the plaintiff sought judgment as a matter of law on its claim for a subrogated lien against real property under the North Carolina construction lien statute. My clients, the defendants, moved for dismissal for summary judgment that would dismiss the plaintiff's claim for a subrogated lien against real property as a matter of law under section 44A23-C of the construction lien law. Uh, the statute at issue, uh, section 23C of the, of the lien law, has two primary features uh, that are at issue under the appeal. Um, first of all, the statute recognizes uh, the longtime right of a lower tier subcontractor, in this case a, a supplier of insulation materials to the project at issue, uh, to assert a lien against the owner's property by way of subrogation. In other words, through the subrogation rights that the primary con prime contractor or general contractor would have against the owner's property. Uh, that is the first feature. The second feature is that in the next breath, the statute says, however, a lien waiver that the contractor gives to the owner before the date on which the lower tier subcontractor perfects its claim of lien acts as a waiver of the lower tier subcontractor's lien rights. And that just comports and reflects basic subrogation law the lien rights of the lower tier subcontractor as the subrogee can't raise any higher than the lien rights of the subrogor, in this case, the contractor. And really, on this appeal, uh, we are asking the court uh, really for nothing more than to apply cardinal rules of statutory construction uh, to conclude that the legislature, the General Assembly, meant exactly what it said in the statute. Uh, we ask the court to give the statute uh, its plain meaning, uh, the meaning that uh, the, would have been given to it in ordinary speech at the time the statute was enacted. I want to just briefly outline the facts so uh, the, the issue becomes a little bit. Before you do, I just, yes. just procedurally, and, and I understand we're, we've got the 54B certification uh, in the trial court's order here, but um, kind of just just the, 
what what does this look like back in the in the trial court right now? Um, are are there any remaining pending claims? Any remaining pending parties? Or or does um, or does the trial court's order in this case effectively finish this finish this case? The the trial court's order does finish the case. It was a final order. Uh, Atlantic, the plaintiff, reserved any rights it has for a, a claim of lien against funds, because right now there's a case going on in Texas between Matrix the general contractor, and Landcoast, the supplier with whom Atlantic dealt, over whether Matrix owes Landcoast any money. So depending on the outcome of that case, Atlantic may have a claim of lien against funds, uh, but the, the, the order was final and therefore appealable as of right. Uh, and just to relay some of the facts from the summary judgment motion, what was determined uh, or established really as a matter, with beyond genuine dispute was that Matrix, one of my clients, was the prime contractor, uh, contracted with Piedmont Natural Gas Company for the construction of a peak shaving uh, facility in Robson County. Uh, Matrix entered into a subcontract with Landcoast Insulation. Uh, and the, the subcontract with Landcoast Insulation required Landcoast to supply and install insulation materials for the piping and the equipment uh, for the project. Landcoast, in turn, had a supplier, Atlantec, who is the appellee here, uh, who supplied the insulation materials. Uh, Atlantec supplied the insulation materials beginning in or about March of 2021 and continued to supply insulation materials uh, up through the end of July of 2021. Uh, Matrix, as the work was progressing and Landcoast was installing the insulation on the piping and equipment, was receiving payment applications from Landcoast. And Landcoast certified in each of the payment applications that it had been paying its suppliers in full and was completely up to date uh, that it didn't owe any of its subcontractors or, or suppliers any money. Uh, and commensurately, uh, Matrix was then submitting payment applications to the project owner uh, in which it certified that all lower tier subcontractors were, were paid to date uh, and Matrix was paid uh, by Piedmont Natural Gas Company. I wanted to ask a question about sure. those, um, those lien waivers. I know that, um, that there was a claim that the monies had been paid, correct? That, that Land Coast had paid, correct? There was a representation by Land Coast that it had paid and that was incorrect. Atlantic, it, it was false. Uh, okay. The, so my question is, then, do those is there is there an argument that those lien waivers are in fact void for some reason, or could not at all, Your Honor? Because really, the, the what's uh, what's operative is not so much the lien waiver from Landcoast to Matrix, but under the statute, what is operative is the lien waiver that Matrix, in good faith, mm -hmm. gave to Piedmont. So, so there's no company. argument that that. No, Your Honor. Is, is no, Your for Honor. Any reason. Okay. You know, and I, and I point out, I, I, I give the history of the Landcoast uh, um, payment applications so the court understands the, the bona fide nature of the lien waivers and releases that Matrix, in reliance on sworn certifications, gave to the project owner. Uh, but again, the timeline is basically March of 2021 through the end of July of 2021. And on July 19th of 2021, Matrix gave Piedmont Natural Gas Company a 
partial lien waiver and release that waived all lien rights for all work and material furnished to the project through the end of June of 2021. And that, of course, would include a waiver of any concern <laughs> lien for the work that Land Coast did and for the materials that Atlantic supplied to Land Coast. Uh, then again, on September 16th of 2021, Matrix provided another lien waiver to Piedmont Natural Gas Company in which it waived all rights for work and material furnished to the project up through August 31st of 2021. And that date's important because uh, when Matrix learned that, that Lancoast had not paid its subcontractors and for other reasons it terminated Lancoast from the job the first week of August of 2021. Um, and I point that out because the, the consequence and the meaning of that is by the time that Atlantic perfected its claim of lien against real property on November 18th of 2021, Matrix had already given PNG lien waivers and releases in which it released all lien rights with respect to materials, labor, uh, and, and services furnished to the project through the end of August of 2021. So, so un under the, uh, the Vulcan case, though, the the extent of the lien is based on the amount of the contract. I mean, obviously, it's it, it's limited by the amount of the, the what's owed for the work. Yes, but, that was one of the. But it's the involved. scope of the of the the contracted amount itself. Is is that? That's correct. That is that is one of the holdings, and and because in that case, the subcontractor, in fact, was claiming a lien that was greater than what the unpaid contract balance was. Uh, so the case didn't deal at all with the impact of a lien waiver and release other other than to say that you know that that, that could become an that's, issue that's sort of the sort of the top end scope of, of the exactly. lien is, is the amount that's owed under the uh, right that would be the, the contract in full right obviously dependent upon right. whatever is actually and, owed to the state. and that yes your honor and that would be the max that would be the maximum but then by application of 44a-23c if, if a lien it, waiver is, is it your argument that filing a partial lien waiver extinguishes the lien in full? No, Your Honor. A, a, a partial lien waiver only extinguishes the lien for materials and furnished up through the date that the partial lien waiver and release covers, whereas a final lien waiver, of course, would, would knock out any lien whatsoever. And I mean, I think that's significant because this is not an all-or-nothing proposition. Under the plain application of the statute, if a, if a contractor starts supplying services or a second-tier subcontractor starts supplying materials to, to a job on, on January 1st of 2023 and the contractor gives the owner a lien waiver and release covering everything uh, through the end of February of 2003, but then the... It, but the contractor, then second-tier subcontractor, files a notice of claim and perfects its lien claim in April of 2023, then by operation of the partial lien waiver, by definition, only part of its lien has been waived. So, but it seems that, that your construction is talking about tracing funds and tracing charges and things that are paid, no? No, Your Honor, uh, rather than then focusing it all on a tracing of funds. Um, it really, it's just in, in the, the appellate division or the Court of Appeals 
uh, in the Wachovia case in particular, right, talks about the meaning and the, the impact of a partial lien waiver. And the court said, this is 213 North Carolina App, 341 at 351. The court said, partial lien waivers function as an acknowledgement that a payment for labor and materials expended through a certain date has been made and that the contractor has no further lien rights in the furnishing of labor and materials reimbursed by those payments. So the point of me making that quotation from the case is it's not a matter of tracing you know, the, the particular uh, subcontractor who has furnished labor. It's just a matter of the owner the owner getting a lien waiver and release in exchange for making payment for materials furnished up through a certain date. Can so it's just a matter of date as opposed to tracing. Can you address the argument that the lien waiver that was given to the owner did not include the word materials? Um, it, the, the, it, it used the word all work, equipment, and services. So materials would be services. Absolutely. The supply of services to, the supply of materials to a construction project would be. Did, did the, did Land Coast, um, did, its, did its bill to Matrix include materials? So it seems like there's a discrepancy yes. between, so, but, but it, the one between Matrix and PNG didn't include materials. And you're saying that's redundant services? Always. Services, yes, you are. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, in, you know, in summary, um, I realize I still have a little bit of time, but in, in summary, we feel that the trial court's order should be reversed for uh, not less than four reasons. Uh, the first reason is cardinal rules of statutory construction uh, require this statute to be uh, construed and applied just as it was written. At the time the legislature or the General Assembly enacted this amendment in 2013, uh, it knew perfectly well, understood perfectly well, the difference between a final lien waiver and a partial lien waiver. If the General Assembly meant to limit the effect of the waivers to only final lien waivers, it certainly would have said so. Uh, and we've pointed uh, the court in our appendix uh, to, for example, uh, the NCRH bill number 1052, this is at our appendix 67 through 68 uh, uh, in 2012 that even drafted uh, form partial lien waivers and form final lien waivers. So the legislature, the General Assembly, was perfectly well versed, understood perfectly the difference between a final lien waiver and a partial lien waiver. And C doesn't and, include either term, right? Partial and, or final, and, correct? And, chose the broad term, lien waiver. A partial lien waiver is a lien waiver. It's different than a final lien waiver in that it only is partial in nature. It only applies to waive claims, lien claims for services, materials, equipment. So which term is broader, final or partial? I'm sorry? Which term are you asserting is broader, final or partial? No, I'm asserting that the term lien waiver yeah is broad and meant to encompass both partial lien waivers and final lien waivers. The, the legislature is very savvy in, in, uh, in his uh, 
enacted a, a statutory scheme in the construction lien that, unlike a lot of other states, is a, is a very good example of balances and counterbalances, protections for uh, the contractors who are asserting liens, but also protections for the prime contractors and protections for the owners. Um, this, the second reason that the court should respectfully give the statute its plain meaning is to do otherwise would subvert basic rules of subrogation law. The lien rights of the lower tier subcontractor uh, can never raise higher than the lien rights of the general contractor. If Matrix had attempted to assert a lien uh, against the project property after uh, after, excuse me, November 18th of 2021, the date on which Atlantic perfected its appeal, PNG, the project owner, would have the absolute defense of, you already gave me a lien waiver for all materials, services, et cetera, delivered to the project up through that date. So the lower tier subcontractor is subject to the same defenses as the contractor, um, and that's basic principles of subrogation law. How much, how much money was left on the contract on November 18th when this lien waiver was, on, this lien was perfected on November 18th? The under the, under the, the overall EPC contract, approximately 10 million. 10 million, okay, yes. so my question is, on November 18th or November 19th, is there an amount, is it, is it approximately $10 million left that could be leaned upon? Or is it simply up until that date? I mean, again, we sort of, we're talking about, what are we waiving? Is it an, a plot right. or is it a, a date? It, it, it's a date. So, so the lien waiver is already given to the owner. It's a partial lien waiver. So it's only effective through the dates we identified, right? The last one being the October 31st of 2021 lien claim. So Matrix can claim a lien for work it performs in the future, but it certainly can't claim a lien for work that it performed on the job up through that date. Uh, the, the, the final, or the third reason why we asked the court to apply the cardinal principles of statutory construction and, and, and apply the language as the legislature wrote it is because it doesn't conflict in any way, shape, or form with the court's holdings in Swain Electric, which is a case that's it's gotten, garnered a lot of discussion in this matter. Uh, in Swain Electric, the court, of course, recognized uh, that uh, lower-tier subcontractor may still have a lien against, subrogated lien against real property, even if it no longer has a, a claim of lien against funds. But then in the very next breath also says, of course, that the clear statutory language indicates that the contractor may prejudice the subcontractor's rights through waiver of the lien or acceptance of payment all the way up until the date that the lower tier subcontractor files an action to enforce its lien. That's a different date because it's under a prior version of the statute in 1991 when Swain was decided. And the Swain court then also says very clearly uh, at page 660 of its decision, in addition, we note that the use of lien waivers used other than anticipation of and in consideration for the awarding of a contract 
may also minimize liability by contractors who deal with the owner. So even though Swain, of course, stands for the proposition that the lower tier subcontractor can still have a lien against real property, even if it no longer has a lien against funds, the court also recognizes the protection that the contractor can avail itself of by giving an owner a lien waiver, a partial lien waiver, a lien waiver. And I think one of the form. arguments we see from, from your colleagues is that then the General Assembly amended the statute to add this sort of notice of contract process, yes. Yes. which y'all did not, or was not taken advantage not, of. In, in we did not, Your Honor. We don't have evidence uh, that the notice of contract was ever posted, and, and that would have been a defense, but that's not the only defense under the statute. If that were the only defense under the statute, then 44A-23C would be meaningless. And as I said, this is just a, the, the legislature did a brilliant job of creating balances and counterbalances that protect both the, the lower tier subcontractors, the subcontractors, the contractors, and also uh, the owners. Um, and you hit on my final point, uh, the fourth reason why um, the, uh, the court should reverse uh, the trial court's decision and uh, reverse not only the grant of summary judgment in favor of Atlantic, but also reverse the denial of summary judgment in favor of Matrix, um, is that, uh, again, if the legislature had intended for the notice of contract posting provision to have been the only defense available to the contractor, 44A-23C would would be meaningless. And of course, 44A-23C was amended into its current form in 2013, which was after the date uh, on which the notice of contract. Is there not an argument, though, that we can give effect to the statute and we can give effect to this, the, the concept of partial lien waivers um, simply by viewing it through the lens of reducing the ultimate liability that may be on the lien because by reducing the amount that's owed under the contract? Uh, well, Your Honor, I think it's <clears throat> getting back to just fundamental right subrogation law. It's really a question of on November 18, 2021, when Atlantic perfect, perfected its lien against real property, could Matrix have leaned the project for work services, equipment, materials furnished to the project up through August 31st of 2021? The answer is no. And since Matrix could not do that, Atlantic also cannot do that as a matter of law. I'm not sure how much time I have left. Right? 7.55. <laughs> you want to reserve it all? You may. I can reserve it all. I, I, I think I, I hit the main points, but I, get, I would ask the court if it has any questions for me that it hasn't already asked, and I'll do my best to respond. Not right now. Thank you. May it please the court, my name is David Carson. I'm an attorney with the law firm of Johnston, Allison, and Horde in Charlotte. I'm here with Grace Ketron, who is here with me. She's also a lawyer at the law firm of Johnston, Allison, and Horde in Charlotte. Um, and um, 
I'm going to get right to it. Uh, uh, one procedural question, I think Judge Hampson asked this question earlier about the procedural status of the matter. After Atlantec won on its motion for summary judgment as the plaintiff in this lien enforcement action, the court also allowed um, under 44A35 Atlantec to file its motion for reasonable attorney's fees. And at the time of the appeal, the appropriate arrangements were made with the state courts that upon the court ruling on the appeal that in the event the um, appellant's appeal was denied and that the panel affirmed the um, Superior Court's ruling that we could go back to the state court to request our attorney's fees under 4435. So I want to make sure that that's the procedural status as I understand it. Um, this is a case where the law of electric supply versus Swain um, is the law of the case. It's as simple as that. And at the Superior Court level, when we filed a motion for summary judgment, that was the argument. Um, and what I want to do is, and what happened after electric supply Swain, which created a separate, which acknowledged a separate subrogation lien right by second tier subcontractors, that separate lien right, which was not equivalent to the lien upon funds, created a distinct risk of double payment on behalf of the general contractors. And I'll explain exactly why that happens just in a minute. But what happened was the general contractors for the first time were exposed to a risk of double payment by the holding and electric supply versus Swain. And within the next year, after the strong lobby of the Carolinas um, I guess it's CAGC, Carolina Association of General Contractors, the legislature in effect legislated around this Supreme Court decision, which is still good law, but they legislated around it and gave the general contractors a way to eliminate the liens on property by second and third tier subcontractors. And as well, you know, my client, Atlantic Distribution, is a second tier supplier and this case is easy, at least it was for us. The general contractor in this case, without question, and as a matter of fact, as found by the lower courts, and they're not even appealing this issue, they failed to take advantage of the notice of contract mechanism, and if they had taken advantage of that notice of contract mechanism, I would not be before you right now because my client would, not have no, would no longer have had a right to assert a lien on real property by subrogation. The 44A23 notice of contract mechanism puts in the hands of the general contractors the subrogation lien rights of second and third tier subcontractors as a way to eliminate double payment. And in this case, the out-of-state contractor who came into North Carolina to build this $200 million project failed to take advantage of the get-out-of-jail-free card that the legislator gave to general contractors after the ruling in Swain. So is it your, your argument that, as it sort of relates to this case, that, this, that the notice of contract kind of subsumes and replaces the, the lien waiver concept? Or the lien waiver still exists as a separate thing, um, I guess? That's a great question. And here's the point about Swain. And, and I'm answering your question by explaining the details of Swain. The Swain case 
was a, a case about an electrical supplier. In this case, it's an installation supplier, but in Swain, it was an electrical supplier. And it's a, a fact in that case that at the time the lien was filed, the owner had already paid the general for all of the electrical materials. And the general had already paid the first tier for all the electrical materials. And because those two payments were out the door, guess what? The second tier subcontractor no longer had a right to a lien upon funds. And so at the court level, excuse me, in, 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 the, in the Supreme Court of North Carolina, ultimately in their holding, in their ruling, in their order, they say, well, wait a minute. There's a separate lien right by second tier subs. There's got the lien on funds where you have to go up following the money upstream to the owner. And there's a second lien right, and it's a constitutional right, and we'll get to that in a minute too. But the second tier sub steps into the shoes of the general contractor to assert the lien of the general contractor. And I think, Judge Hampton, you made this point as is detailed in Vulcan, it's for the contract balance due. Can I just say, though, when I look at the, the lien waiver, it, it refers to as of the date of this waiver. It talks specifically about the dates on the lien waiver and services performed as of the date. It seems to me it is cutting off at a hard stop what's been supplied up to that date and not what's remaining on it. Um, the Swain case for a number of reasons, is only talking about the contract balance owed. Why am I saying that? One, because remember, in the Swain case, the, the general contractor's already been paid 100% for all the electrical materials. They have no lien rights for the electrical materials. Why? Because they've already been paid. And in, the, in, the in, in, in Swain, they actually say, um, and I, I don't, I'm just going to read for a split second, I apologize, um, that we hold that in light of the policy, and I'll get to the policy in a minute too, the subcontractor may assert whatever lien. It doesn't say a lien related to the materials that are the basis of the subcontractor's lien. That's not what the court says. That's what Matrix wants this court to hear. But when you read the case, it doesn't say that. It says whatever lien that the contractor who dealt with the owner has against the owner's real property relating to the project. And in Vulcan case, which they can't explain away, it's very clear, it's talking about, I'm stepping into the shoes of the general contractor to assert its remaining liens for the contract balance. I don't have to, because remember, my lien on funds are gone. I can't trace the funds back to the property because they've already been paid for. So that was, and it, so that's one big thing. The second thing, if you keep reading Swain, it says, a lien on real property by subrogation may or may not exist depending on the timing of the owner's final payment to the contractor. Why is that sentence important? It's important and it's actually the basis of the whole argument in my mind. Remember, the owner has already paid for the electrical contractors, the electrical materials. It's unequivocally true that the money for the electrical materials are gone. And so when the Swain case is saying you've got to lean for whatever lien, and it says to the, I have the, I have, I'm subrogated to the extent of my claim, to the extent lien rights the contractor otherwise has on the project. I mean, words mean something. And so what they're talking about, what Swain gives the subcontractors 
is lien rights in the unpaid balance of the contract. My third and best argument of why am I comfortable um, in arguing to the court, if not telling the court exactly what the Swain case you know, means, you know, it's, I've been practicing construction law in North Carolina for 35 and a half years. The Swain case has been here for 33 of it. And I'll deal with it on a regular basis. But the best argument about Swain, what it means, is what the legislator did about the notice of contract. Let me explain that. If, as Matrix tries to argue, what we're talking about are the lien rights on real property relating to the materials that my client supplied to the project, if that's what Swain means, and it's limited to that, and it doesn't mean the contract balance, as you ask, then the legislature, one, the CAGC wouldn't have gone bananas, and two, the legislature wouldn't have had to gone through the whole process to eliminate the double payment. Again, if the Swain case means what Matrix wants you to think it means, there would be no risk of double payment because the money's not out the door yet. The risk of double payment happens because my client, Matrix, has already been paid for the insulation materials. And based on the record, they actually got paid in advance. We have no control over that as a second tier sub. But the, the fact of the matter is they're paid in full, but we're not paid. And at the time our lien hits on real property, we have, what, $4.5 million of active lien rights that moment, plus another $7 million that happened down the road. So whether or not there's a lien waiver, a partial lien waiver, as it's entitled, all their documents are called partial lien waivers, but they want them to magically become final lien waivers. Those partial lien waivers are waiving rights that already occurred but based on the Swain case, what my client has a right to do is to step in the shoes of the general contractor and assert that subrogated lien against the contract balance. So Let me I think that would be my, and that's sort of my question I'm trying to get some clarification on, I guess, is that you're, you're, it's not your contention that these partial lien waivers are of, of zero impact or effectively legal nullities. It's that, it's that while it, it, it might reduce perhaps the contract balance, it, do, it doesn't extinguish the contract balance for purposes of the assertion of a lien under, you know, Vulcan, Swain. Right, Swain. it reduces the, the amount owed under the contract and it reduces the ultimate lien that the general contractor could assert. But remember, um, and again, I'm gonna read this, and apologies, this is important. This is a key thing to this case this is a constitutional right, and this is going to get to my next argument about 44A23C. In considering the policy objectives the legislature sought to achieve by enacting the statute, 44A23, the subrogation statute, we note that a constitutional mandate is directly on point. The General Assembly shall provide by proper legislature, legislation for giving its two mechanics and laborers an adequate lien on the subject matter of their labor. So it's a constitution, this is Article Three of the North Carolina Constitution. This is an, a constitutional right of the second tier subcontractors for a lien for their work, a lien on real property relating to their work. The court goes on further. An adequate lien is intended to foster the construction industry which operates largely on credit. Suppliers, such as my client, provide labor and materials to contractors and subcontractors who perform their portion of the work on the project. Key point. 
Since the contractor or subcontractor is generally not paid until the job or portion of it is completed, their suppliers, like my client, extend labor and materials to them on credit. An adequate lien is necessary to encourage responsible extensions of credit which are necessary to the health of the construction industry. So, when and Swain provided my client and all second and third tier subcontractors the right to step into the shoes of the general contractor and assert the general contractor's lien on the remaining contract balance. That's an unequivocally true statement. And there's no other true reading of the Swain case. And if you want to know if that's really the true reading, then you look at what the, the legislator did a year later to create the notice of contract, which cuts off the double payment risk of the general contractors, which they didn't take advantage of. Um, but again, the key thing here is the lien waivers may reduce the contract balance owed, but the risk of double payment occurs because the second tier subcontractors step in the shoes of the general and are able to assert the lien of the remaining contract balance. Um, there was a, a comment made earlier about um, whether we're talking about a pot of the money, and I, and I, and I think Judge Conrad asked that question. I think that's the clear meaning of Swain is that's what, that's what causes the problem with double payment. It creates the, the, pot, it's the pot of money we're talking about, and the money's out the door, and the first tier, for whatever reason, doesn't pay. And let's just be honest, the first tier ran away with the money and didn't make payment. But it's all, and this is an important fact, Your Honor, that my client supplied the insulation materials in this $200 million project and in the depositions and as a matter of fact in the affidavit, those materials were incorporated into the building. They were used. And the ability for Matrix to cut off their lien rights by subrogation under 4423, which is this notice of contract mechanism, let me tell you how that works. But this is how the court, understanding it was a constitutional right, there was a lot of painstaking effort to make sure that they didn't call, that the second tier subs didn't call not knowing what was happening. Here's what happens. A notice of contract within 30 days of the issuance of the building permit of the signing of the contract have to file and post at the courthouse and at the site of the improvement a document called a notice of contract saying here's the project and it gives, you, it gives the notice basically saying owner, GC, and it tells who the parties are. If there's a notice of contract either filed and posted, filed and posted, a second or third tier sub can give a notice of subcontract to the general contractor. And if the second tier sub does that, each time the general contractor then pays the first tier subcontractor within five days, the general has to give a letter to the second tier sub saying I'm paying them. So that's how the 44A23, the notice of contract mechanism, there are a couple of notice. actually there's three separate notices. One of public record, one a letter to the GC, and then there's multiple letters from the GC to the second tier sub. Hey man, I just paid your first tier sub. And the idea is, if the second tier sub keeps getting these letters saying I'm paying the first tier sub, it's sort of their own fault if they stay there and keep supplying materials if they're not getting paid. They're all notice that payment's coming down the chain. That's the painstaking effort, I'm stealing words here, that the legislature went through to create this defense to this double payment. And I will suggest to you, 
if, if, if Matrix interpretation of 44A23C, which is not correct, where you can says up until the time, it just says that until the time um, the subcontractor files its, excuse me, serves its notice of claim of lien and files its claim of lien, a, a lien waiver can prejudice the second tier subcontractor. Um, clearly that means a final lien waiver because if, if, they, if, the, if in the, the converse of what has been argued is true, if, if understanding that there's already this get out of jail free card for the general contractor to cut off the second and third tier subcontractor's rights on real property, it's out there. And frankly, most every general contractor in the state uses it, particularly on a $200 million project. Matrix fell to. And so they go to this other statute and say, because we've given partial lien waivers, we should be able to claim that we don't have rights to a lien for your materials, therefore you don't have rights of lien by subrogation. And frankly, that's just not what Swain says. Now, I don't want to admit that their partial lien waivers are, are determinative of our rights, but I will say this, even if they get those partial lien waivers, it doesn't change the fact that my client's rights to subrogation and to step in the shoes of the general is for the remaining contract balance. Whether or not the general has the right to, to file a lien for those materials, I mean, that's been determined in 1991 by Swain. So whether the general, like in the Swain case, remember the general contractor's been paid in full. General contractor can't file a lien for those electrical materials, can they? Of course they can't. And here he's saying, well, we signed a partial lien waiver, so we can't file a lien for those materials. Therefore, you can't file a subrogation lien. The problem with that is that forgets the, the focus of Swain, which is to assert a lien against the unpaid contract balance. Um, Can I ask a question? Is there a difference between a final lien waiver and the last interim lien waiver? Or do you have the last interim lien waiver and then a summary one? Does that make sense? I don't know that it has any relevance. It's just a question. Um, I know in this case that um, the contract, the prime contract basically was saying that you submit these partial lien waivers which reduces the amount owed under the contract and reduces the contractor's lien rights by, by that dollar amount. And there's a case, and I think it's the mainline case, that says it doesn't change the relation back date of the lien. So even a partial lien waiver doesn't change the relation back date of the lien. But there's a, a, a and, and I'm going to miss the quote, it's 44A, or maybe it's, it's 22B, and I can look at my uh, brief in a minute and double check it, but basically the lien statutes were amended recently, which basically said when you get a payment for $100,000, you can only sign a lien waiver for $100,000, and otherwise it's a false lien waiver. So. The way the statutes are worked, until you're paid your final amount, you're not supposed to sign a final lien waiver because otherwise you'd be given a lien waiver before in advance of the monies that are otherwise owed, which is now against the rules and under against the statute. So is it fair to say that the, 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 the last interim lien waiver is the same thing as a final lien waiver? It's the last one that comes because all the money's gone. I just want to know if there's some semantics about this final lien waiver that has specific language um, in it. In this case, there was no retainage being held for whatever reason. The owner wasn't holding retainage. And so 
after they finish the punch work and after the contract says we can hold, I pick a number, $50,000 while you finish the punch work, once the punch work is finished to get that final 50,000 of lien waiver and there's a separate form attached to the contract, one says partial lien waiver, the other says final lien waiver. And they turned in the final lien waiver if they already have to get their final payment. couple of things. I want to talk about sort of the point about the policy of, of the subrogation right of the second tier subcontractors and why it's important. Um, you know, what, what they want to say is, well, we've given these partial lien waivers. And the fact is, if you read their brief, if you read Matrix's brief, Lancoast, the ne'er-do-well first-tier subcontractor actually signed some certification in June saying that 100% of the materials had already been delivered to the site. My client has no control over that. But you also heard Mr. Preciosi say a few minutes ago that our client didn't finish supplying materials until July. So what happens is, I don't know why Lancoast was claiming that they were supplied more materials than they had, but they did. And in this instance, unlike the notice of contract mechanism, if the general contractor can sign partial lien waivers that otherwise cut off the subrogation rights of the second tier subcontractor in the dark, so to speak, then you're putting my client's rights, who the, client, who the case understands, we're extending credit, we're supplying materials, and there's no question our materials go in the building. And in the event the first tier sub overbills, or in the event the, you know, in, the general contractor has paid these monies before lien on funds hits, which it, 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 you're leaving the second tier subcontractor in the dark when under the notice of contract mechanism, which is the, play, the, the, the current methodology in place to take away their lien on real property, they have full notice of what's happening. I need to point out too to the court that um, Atlantic served its lien upon funds late July of 2021. It's a fact that's in all the briefs. In the pay applications from Matrix to the owner in both September and October, again, they give the record, that they, they refer to the place in the record where these documents exist. There's a part of that pay application that says, we don't know of any unpaid contractors who are claiming through the contractor. We don't know of any unpaid contractors who are claiming through the contractor. So in addition to the fact that we have Lancoast, who is putting some spin, I'll say that nicely because I can't really say what I want to say it is, but they go in and say, we've delivered all our materials in June, which that just wasn't true. Then, at least twice, after the lien on funds hits, Matrix submits pay application to the owner, and the statement there is, we know of no claimants of unpaid subcontractors claiming through the contractor. So our argument at court and now before this panel is Swain and electric supplier in full force and effect in this case. My client has unequivocally the right to stand in the shoes and assert the subrogation claim of lien on real property 
at the time the lien hits, not at some earlier time. And most importantly, I would not be in Raleigh today if Matrix had have taken advantage of this notice of contract mechanism, which would have cut off my client's lien rights as a result of the Swain case so that there wouldn't be the double payment exposure. But it's not your, it's not, your argument is not dependent, though, on, on having to look sort of behind the lien waivers and the certifications and determine was this a valid lien waiver, was this, was the certification bona fide, right? Because then you start getting into issues. No, the, the, the bottom line is there's never, Matrix doesn't point in the case, and there's no case that I know of in North Carolina or any other jurisdiction which seems to say that my subrogation rights follow the money that goes to pay for my materials. That tracing argument is nowhere to be found in North Carolina case law and for the reasons that it would just create chaos and also would undo the, 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 the straightforward holding of Swain. Another thing is, again, if you look at the answer of the defendants, namely Matrix, Fidelity, and the owner, they initially raise as an affirmative defense, I think it's 44A, B1, and B2, which is the notice of contract mechanism. They also reference the fact that they've paid Lancoast in full for these materials that we're leaning for. And if you peruse their affirmative defenses, not until they realized that they had botched the notice of contract and the fact that the Lancoast had been paid in full weren't a defense to my client's right of subrogation per the Swain case, did they come up with this in-run argument of 44A23C. I looked last night, it's not in their affirmative defense. It became their primary defense because the notice of contract defense went out the window because they failed to follow the procedure. And I would just say, my client provided the materials and there has been no question the materials were viable and that they were incorporated and that they improved the real property. And it's way less than one half of 1% of the contract amount, which is $200 million. They've earned the right by following the lien statutes to, to assert this subrogation claim of lien on real property. And you know, we would ask that the court um, affirm the lower court's ruling. Um, I do want to say and, 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 uh, one more point. The Vulcan case is really important of what we're arguing here today. And, the Vulcan case, which is actually cited by Matrix in their brief, but the Vulcan case stands for this. In that case, the owner only owed the general 42 grand. That was all the money that was left over on the whole contract, the contract balance. The second tier sub was owed way more than 42 grand. Let's use the number 100,000, even though the, the, the case doesn't say the specific number. Let's just say it's 100,000, but it's way more than 42,000. That subcontractor argued in that case that based on Swain, they were able to assert a lien greater than the general contractor had. And the court said, no, 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 you can assert the claim of lien relating to the contract balance, but you can't have more of a lien than the general contractor has as the contract balance. So in that case, the subcontractor was awarded a lien by subrogation, but it was limited to the contract balance. And we're not asking the court for a 
lien for the contract balance because the contract balance is like $7.8 million at the time our lien hit. What we're asking for is of the $4.5 million that was due and owing by the owner, by the owner to the general contractor, which was ultimately paid in December of 21, that that money should be um, uh, paid to our client by either the surety or matrix or the owner um, because that's what the lien statu statutes allow. And um, I'll end where I started. Um, I appreciate your attention and your questions. Um, if uh, I don't mean to be overly passionate about it, but I believe our client is correct in where they stand. And I believe that our client has gone through the painstaking process of serving a lien on funds, um, filing a subrogation claim of lien, timely filing a lawsuit, timely going through depositions, evading the notice of contract defense, which is no longer on the table, and then um, asking the court to enforce Swain, which is no longer, in this case, limited by the notice of contract mechanism. Um, are there any further questions? No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I believe I have five yes, minutes. seven minutes five. 37 seconds. <laughs> okay. I don't think I'm going to take all that time. I just wanted to address uh, three or four points raised by my very capable adversary. Atlantic argued a minute ago before the court that it was essentially kept in the dark. I just wanted to address that. Uh, Atlantic, as I argued, as both parties have laid out in the facts, started delivering materials to the project in March of 2021. Didn't get paid by Land Coast. Uh, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, go by. And Atlantic doesn't take steps to protect itself by filing a lien against real property. And so to the extent that Atlantic argues we wouldn't be here if Matrix uh, had filed, or excuse me, had posted a notice of contract under the statute, my response to that would be we also wouldn't be here if Atlantic had taken the steps that are in, in protections that are available to it under the lien statute just by filing and perfecting its claim of lien against real property well, that's in, the, in that's, April. That's the hard part about this case, right, is that the two parties that are here you know, arguing this case are not really the parties that were that were necessarily at fault. Yes, that's true. For the non-payment. Right? That's so, true. I mean, and, and, yeah. and, it, and I think right. both parties will concede that, like, there, there were steps that might have been taken. You didn't file the notice of contract. Perhaps the lien wasn't filed, you know, the claim of lien wasn't filed immediately. Right. But, there, but, but it doesn't take all of that off the table. I mean, the lien, you would, you would know, you would concede, I think, that the, the claim of lien that's filed is effective as of the date it's filed. It's perfected well, on the, uh, yeah, well, it's two, two things. It's, it's perfected on the date that it's recorded with the county clerk in Robson County, which was November 18th of 2021. You know, it's actually effective going, technically speaking, under the statute. It's effective to the date the material, that they first delivered materials. But, you know, in terms of Matrix not posting the notice of contract, we wouldn't be here if, if Atlantic had filed uh, a lien against real property, let's say in April of 2021, which it could have done under the statute. Under the statute, it's 
it has the protection, it's permitted to file a lien as soon as its invoice becomes mature, which was 30 days. So it didn't do that. But you know, these hindsight suppositions are really unnecessary because we have a statute that is abundantly clear. And Atlantic's argument this afternoon has left one burning, bright neon question unanswered. And that is the legislature, knowing all about Swain, knowing all about partial lien waivers and the difference between a partial lien waiver and final lien waivers, enacted a statute that said a lien waiver given to the owner before the second tier subcontractor perfects its lien is a waiver of lien rights. Why did such a well-versed legislature not use the words final lien waiver if that's what it meant? And I would just leave the court with it. The second, to me, cardinal rule of statutory construction that you're, you're all very familiar with already. And that is, quote, courts should not, or excuse me, courts should give effect to the words actually used in the statute and should neither delete words nor insert words not used in the relevant statutory language when construing the meaning of a statute. This legislature knew what it was doing. It purposefully used the words lien waiver instead of final lien waiver. And we respectfully submit that the statute should be enforced as written. I just, if I could just address one other point that I don't think is relevant to the argument on appeal. I don't even think it was argued uh, before the trial court. At least I, I don't remember it being argued before the trial court. But my adversary uh, contends that Matrix continued to give lien waivers that didn't mention the fact that a lien had been filed by Atlantic. And the reason for that is because Matrix did the right thing. As soon as the lien was filed, it performed its duties and obligations to the owner by bonding off the lien. In other words, it went out and got a $900,000, excuse me, it was like $890,000 bond from Fidelity. That's why Fidelity is a party to this case and posted the bond. And that has the effect of discharging the lien. I just didn't want to think the court to think that Matrix had done anything untoward when, when really the record shows it was a good actor in all of this. Uh, I don't have anything further, Your Honors. Okay. No. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both for your argument. The court will take this case under advisement. Can you please gavel?